My good people, greetings, how are you, what is going on, what is happening, how's everybody doing, what is the latest and greatest, hope you're not feeling hungover this morning as we recap the Super Bowl and get into everything that's going on in the world of sports here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast, this is your host J Reels, for my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me for now 112 episodes, I welcome you guys back, again it's a Monday, February the 3rd, in the year of our Lord 2020, the J Reels What's the Deal segment, that's right, what do we have on tap for this episode, well it goes as follows, We'll recap the Australian Open as Novak Djokovic and Sofia Kennan, both are winners of the men's and women's respectively. We'll talk about their road to a championship as the first tennis major is in the books for 2020. We'll also get into the aftermath of everything that happened last week in the NBA, especially in the world of Kobe Bryant. The ceremony during the first game back at the Staples Center this past Friday. We'll get into that, everything that transpired throughout the course of the week and everything else that's happening in the NBA. Also, a rivalry seems to be renewed out in Alberta between the Edmonton Oilers and Calgary Flames. I understand people are going to say, Jay Reels, who cares about those teams? I'll explain why it was a big deal and that the NHL missed the boat on this. Shocker. Seems like the NHL will do anything to not promote its game or not do anything to enhance the game, considering there are three other sports that are well ahead of them as far as popularity is concerned. Also, MLB, as baseball will kick off next week, new manager in Houston, lots to get to, of course, my hero in Zero of the Week, but we will start off with the final football game of the year, which was played last night down in Miami. We all know the particulars, the matchup, we pretty much beat it to death over the course of the past week, although I will say this, with the aftermath of Kobe Bryant and everything that transpired, just the tragedy, obviously we don't need to rehash everything, but that just took up so much of the news story the early part of the week up until about Wednesday that you couldn't even think about the Super Bowl. And it wasn't until Thursday that I really start to get into everything about this game. A lot of it that we talked about last week between the Casey offense, the San Francisco defense, all the other storylines, Andy Reid, of course, Kyle Shanahan back at the game this time as a head coach, as opposed to being an offensive coordinator, all those things. So the although it wasn't a good thing, obviously with the whole Kobe Bryant situation, but at the same time, it wasn't as if by Thursday I was sick and tired of the game, let's just kick off and get ready to go. Because as we all know, those two weeks between games, it just seems to take forever. You're sick and tired of all the storylines being beaten to death and just inside out, upside down, and we get it. That's what we do here as far as try to bring the game to light, all the different angles, all the different situations that may come up throughout the course of the game, but by the time you get to Friday, you're just I'm sick of it. You just want the game to start, just get it in the way, and away we go. And before I get into the game, the takeaways that I got from last night are threefold. One, I get it's a thing you have to look at the Chiefs and give them credit for what they did to come back in this game to win. Down 10 points, getting the ball back with about nine and change left, and everything that took place from then on out to, of course, win the Super Bowl, and that should be the storyline number one. But to me, I think that was actually the, I'll say the two to the Niners 1 and 1A. And the Niners, number one, first and foremost, if you're a Niner fan this morning, my guy Louis Pizarro, you're sick to your stomach. Not to say this is a game that you had no business losing because there was still plenty of time left, even after the interception by Patrick Mahomes there, late, deep in the Niner territory with about 11.57 to go. And with the way their defense was rolling and playing at that point, I mean, who would have thought that with a 10-point lead, there was no way they're going to lose the game? But that is one that is just going to stick to you for the rest of your life. But the defense after that was just atrocious. 
how they gave up this game, to me, they are public enemy number one. And I get that Stephen A. Smith wants to come out and say, oh, Kyle Shanahan, he blew this game. It was terrible. This is all on him. The defense, which was stout for 48 minutes, to think 10 points. And mind you, that the Niners scored 17 unanswered after it was 10-3. to You thought there was no way that the Chiefs, and as we've seen all postseason, whether they're down by 10 or down by 24, they've come back in these games. But when you're getting into the fourth quarter, and especially with nine minutes left, and right, there's still plenty of game to go. The defense, okay, they didn't make that one stop, which we're going to get into in a minute. But for them not to make the second stop down or up at 20-17 or even at 24-20 when they're obviously their Super Bowl lives dependent on it, to have Damian Williams go up the sideline with just no safety help, uh, that was just, I, what was the play call there? So that's number one. Number two, Shanahan and Jimmy G, they're going to get tied to the hip. There is some blame to be thrown around there because even after trailing at 24-20 when they got that big run there by Raheem Mostert for 17 yards and they still had plenty of time to go even after the two-minute warning at first and 10 and second and 10, I believe that they were at the Chief 49. They could have run the ball there. They had all their timeouts. They had plenty of time to work with. Instead, they go for three pass plays, including one that they actually got to delay a game, which was never called. But Frank Clark, who got the sack, I'm going to get to him later on, got the sack there on 4th and 10, and that was, in essence, the game. And why did all of a sudden he wanted to throw the ball over the lot? Mind you, he almost had Emmanuel Sanders for a touchdown where he overthrew him. But if you want to look at clock management, not being able to keep control of his team, keep control of the game, and look at it from a perspective of, I have all my timeouts in my back pocket, I have a minute in... 40-some-odd seconds left to go. I'm in chief territory. Let's see how I want to deploy my offense. And they could have just stuck to their guns. And who knows? It could have been a lot different for the 49ers. But that wasn't the case. To me, the defense takes a severe hit here. Because there was no way they should have lost this game. But the play call, Shanahan, Jimmy G. And I don't want to put it all on Jimmy G. Because, again, when you're going to compare him to Mahomes, it's night and day. And that's not to say that Jimmy G is a career backup or is a guy that should have stayed in New England. No, he's capable and he could certainly play in this league. But anybody at this juncture right now of the NFL, I don't care what your name is. I don't care if your name is Russell Wilson. I don't care if your name is Aaron Rodgers. I don't care if your name is Lamar Jackson. The quarterback in this league right now, and he showed and proved it throughout this postseason. And, of course, yesterday it was Patrick Mahomes. And then thirdly is Kansas City and how they were able to come out from under the rubble at 11.57 to go after that pick by Mahomes, and he did not have a great game. I understand he had a great nine and a half minutes to close out the game. He got the MVP. I understand it's arguable. You probably could have given it to Damian Williams because he was a stabilizer in that game. And you also could have possibly given it to Tyreek Hill, who had the biggest play of the game, and that was the biggest meltdown, and obviously we're going to get to that. But to me, these takeaways were just killer. And it's all in the Niners. Granted, the Chiefs won the game, and congratulations to them. A stupendous job on their part for them to continue to be down double digits, especially this late in the game, against a stout Niner defense. And if you're waking up in San Francisco or any other part of the country that you're a Niner fan, you you cannot sleep. You're sick to your stomach. I know I would. And when you couple that with the Super Bowl 47 loss, now again, you had a 
you had to come from 28 6 down and you had to Beyonce and the lights going out in New Orleans and you came all the way back and then you had the pass interference in the end zone, Michael Crabtree, and we get that it could have been interference. They didn't call it there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Ravens went on to win a Super Bowl. So be it. But this one, I'm sorry. This is going to stick to your ribs forever. And I don't want to hear it. No excuses. I don't want to hear it. We got jerked by the refs. I don't, there's no excuses. There's no way that you should lose that game up 10, defense playing as dominant and physical as ever, and dominant in the standpoint of being able to put pressure on Patrick Mahomes. They sacked him three times. They knocked him down 11. He was pretty much running for his life. The offensive line of the Chiefs was literally Swiss cheese. They had an awful game as far as pass protection is concerned, but when you have a guy who can run with his legs, not a running quarterback, but he's a quarterback that can run, and certainly extend plays and has the arm of a cannon, you'll always be in the game. And as you saw throughout this whole postseason, didn't matter what the score was, 24 nothing, 10 nothing, or 17-7, and now 20-10, he was able to put on the cape, be the superhero that led his team and that organization to its first Super Bowl in 50 years. So kudos to him. Now, as far as the game is concerned, it was a very good game. It was very entertaining. Anytime you have a game in the fourth quarter where it has drama and you have the comeback ability of what the Chiefs did there, they took the lead, and you had a little bit of drama late, even at 24-20. At 31-20, the game was over. But to have that, it just showed it was a very good game. Was it a classic? By far, it was not. I don't want to hear, oh, they were down 10. No, it was not a classic. So, entertaining, yes. With the drama that you saw there late, without question. Didn't go down to the wire, but still, you had that nine minute and I'll say at nine, what was it, 953, and I'll go back to the play-by-play of the game. But at around roughly 953 till about the, after the Niners gave up the ball there, fourth and 10, you had a lot of high-stakes drama and certainly had an edge of your seat to wonder what was going to happen next. But right, was it the classic? Was it Super Bowl 42? Was it Super Bowl 43? Was it Super Bowl 25? It was not. And that's not a knock on the game or the teams, but it certainly wasn't Niners, Broncos, Super Bowl 24. It wasn't Dallas Buffalo, Super Bowl 27, 52-17. Nine turnovers? Absolutely not. And it definitely wasn't last year's game, 13-3, which was just a, oh, geez, you might as well take a nap to... Yeah, and you didn't miss out anything in that Patriot-Ram game. But when we go through these plays here and talk about this game, the first half I thought was well played. I thought both teams, of course, were pretty sharp. I understand you had the Mahomes pick there, which was not a good pass on his part. That was pretty much the only blemish of the first half. Not a lot of penalties, which was great. Because as we've seen pretty much throughout the whole regular season, there was laundry on the field left and right. Throughout the postseason, you didn't really see too much, so that was a good thing. But there was one situation that certainly had me puzzled, to say the least, that after, late in the first half, when the Chiefs were getting ready to punt the ball, why didn't Kyle Shanahan call a timeout there? They had all three timeouts. They would have had a minute and a half left. Even John Lynch in the luxury suite was calling timeout from up there and didn't happen. Clock wound down to about 59, 58 seconds, whatever it was. And they punted the ball. And right there, I even thought, I said to myself, why, I can see if that one timeout, all right, fine, you're going to let the clock run down. He had all three timeouts. And their offense was moving the ball, 
They were able to run the ball. I know a lot of it was Debo Samuel on those end-of-rounds. Got chunks of yards. Raheem Mostert didn't really have an imprint on this game, not until the second half. But you would think that the Chief defense, which was okay, wasn't great by any stretch in that first half. They certainly couldn't move the ball. And then they had the one play down the sideline there with George Kittle, which was a good call. It was a pass interference. The arm was extended. I understand people in New Orleans are thinking, wait a minute, if that was called, why wasn't it called on Kyle Rudolph in the end zone when the Vikings beat the Saints down there in the wild card round? And it's arguable, but you're not going to end the game on that note, despite the fact that the Vikings were right on the doorstep. So it wouldn't have mattered anyway. They could kick the field goal. Oh, they probably would have scored a touchdown anyway because it was first and goal because remember the play before was the pass from Cousins to Adam Thielen. But I digress. But that was a call that they had to make, and it was the right call, and then after that they took a knee and went to the locker room. And then you had the halftime, which I thought was stellar. Now, I'm not a fan of the music of Shakira or J-Lo by any stretch of imagination, but it was very entertaining. Obviously, it was good on the guy's eyes. I don't know if it was a situation where the NFL was cringing or just holding their breath, wondering if there was going to be any wardrobe malfunctions or just the, the gyrations and the histrionics, which you saw a little bit of, or quite a bit of, between Shakira and J-Lo, but that's what you're going to get. What was Roger Goodell, the NFL, what were they expecting? Uh, Taylor Swift? And who knows, if Taylor Swift's going to be next year's act, I could see it now, watch her come out with some racy material and she's going to try to double down on what J-Lo and Shakira did this year. But as far as the halftime show, I thought it was choreographed very well, very entertaining. Was it up there? Would it rank with the greats? Was it Prince of 2007, Super Bowl 41? Listen, nothing's going to top that if you ask me in my book. But it was spectacular. It was a spectacle. You had Bad Bunny, J Balvin, obviously the Latin influence there with the not only the prime artists of the halftime show, but the theme, Miami, etc. So if Middle America was shuddering at the thought of just looking at what they were seeing with both Shakira and J-Lo and then having Bad Bunny and J Balvin, like, who are these guys? Well, obviously they're not into pop culture. And listen, I don't listen to those guys either. And I'm Latino, and people could say, oh, my God, Jay Reels. Uh, no, 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 that's not my cup of tea. Sorry. But for what it was worth, it was certainly entertaining, and they pulled it off well, and congratulations to them. Excellent job. And the commercials weren't all that either, which that's been the theme for the last five or six years. The Super Bowl commercials have certainly been an atrocity. I did like the Hyundai one. That was good when you had Chris Evans John Krasinski, and then, of course, David Ortiz out the window, the Hyundai. I, to me, that was the best commercial. Hilarious. I, I didn't even know those guys were from Boston. So, you know what? That's what even made it better. So, that's what you have there as far as the halftime and the commercials are concerned. So, now back to the game. So, the second half, even as you're watching this all unfold, and the Niners were certainly dictating the play, for whatever the reason, Mahomes couldn't get on track. You kind of looked at it and wondered as you got into the fourth quarter, even with that drive that they were going along there, late third into the fourth quarter, if they were able to punch it in the end zone there, you probably would have thought, okay, let's see how the Niners would come out. And then the interception happened, and that was a bad throw by Mahomes. He threw it behind Tyreek Hill. It was picked off. And I even tweeted and posted, I said, if this is it right here, this if the Niners sustain any type of drive here this is a game set match Niners are going to win they deserve it dominated now it was a little bit of a reverse jinx because as everybody if you listened to me last week I was rooting hard and heavy for the Chiefs but I really thought that defense 
was going to save the day for San Francisco. And after 48 minutes, I mean, how could you not think that? For the Chiefs to just score 10 points in almost three and a half quarters, if I would have, if somebody would have told me that and I didn't even watch the game, I said, oh, no, they're going to hang on to win this game. All right, maybe 2017, maybe Kansas City gets the ball last and they're threatening to drive, but then somehow, somewhere they'll get a sack or they'll get a big pass play, interception, whatever it is, and that's it. But that was not the case, and it certainly wasn't to be had by the Niners, as now we'll just go by the play-by-play here of these final few minutes before we turn our attention to other things. I understand everybody wants to get, or a lot of people want to get on Kyle Shanahan and Jimmy G for some of the play calling, and they could. There is an argument there to do that. Now, as I pull this up here, after the interception, they had Raheem Mostert had a six-yard run, followed by the pass to Kittle, which actually was a big play for 12 yards. And then at that point, even Troy Aikman had made it. He said, they're just going to run the ball down their throats. You would think this has been the Niners' MO. This has been who they are. This is their identity. And okay, I understand they want to mix it up there, but maybe they got a little bit too cute considering that the bread and butter of this team was to run the ball. And what do they do after that first down to Kittle? Okay, they run most of the left guard for one yard. Then Jimmy G throws a pass that's incomplete to Debo Samuel. Then on third and nine, they get a full start there. And then after that, Jimmy G had to scramble out of the pocket, which he was not pressured at all up until late in the game. Gets scrambled out of the pocket. He gets hit out of bounds. I forgot who it was. I don't know if it was Tyron Matthew. But he gets hit. And I thought he wasn't out of bounds. So it was a good no call there. I know the 49ers sideline went crazy. And they thought that there should have been a personal foul. But that wasn't the case. So now they punt the ball off. And here is the play of the game. At third, well, at this time it was second and 15. Mahomes throws a pass over the middle to Tyreek Hill, which he traps. And as you saw in the replay, it was 100%. They try to get to the line of scrimmage to get a playoff. Shanahan throws a challenge flag. Third and 15, there you go. Now let's see what the Chiefs are going to do here. And this is the game. They had not gotten a big play other than the 28-yard pass in the first half to Sammy Watkins. And then here we go. Down the left sideline, all alone, is Tyree Kill. And to think, even Mahomes was pressured on that play. Because as you've seen, the ball, as it was thrown, it was hanging up in the air for, it seemed like an hour. And then it came down to Tyree Kill. If he would have caught him on the fly, it would have been in the end zone. So maybe it was good for the Chiefs at that point because then they were able to get a few plays, they get into the end zone to get the touchdown. So now it's 20-17. to 17. So now you're thinking, all right, let's see what the Niners are going to do here. So after the touchdown which was a pass there to Travis Kelsey. So the Niners get the ball. They run Mostert for five yards. So, all right, they're still running the ball, which they should. They have the lead. Still be who they are. Second play is a ball batted down on the line of scrimmage. And then on the third and five, after being pressured from the right side, the throw to Kendrick Bourne sails over him. Chiefs get the ball back. Now it's 5-10 to go. And all I could think of is, this is it for Andy Reid. This is what he's going to be remembered by. This is where the legacy, if he's going to spit it up, or he's going to ride off into the sunset. And sure enough, what did the Chiefs do? And obviously what the Niner defense doesn't do, they couldn't make stops. They couldn't do it, whether it was just Mahomes. And again, for the most part, he was dinking and dunking. He didn't really stretch the field until he got the big pass play to Sammy Watkins down that right sideline, 38 yards, beautiful touch pass. 
And Richard Sermon, listen, he's probably going to go to the Hall of Fame. We all know that he's been a great corner in this league for many years. But he's a shell of his old self. Now, can he still play in the league? Absolutely. Without question, he certainly had gutted that out. He came back from the Achilles. I understand he was close to Kobe, mama mentality. But boy, he cannot run with the big dogs anymore. As you saw on that play. And to me, that set up the go-ahead touchdown, obviously. And I thought that Andy Reid was very conservative there on first and goal. He tried to sneak it there. Not really a sneak, but a quarterback draw there with Mahomes. And then they tried to do the same thing pretty much, but then Mahomes was sacked. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second. They should have ran to Damian Williams, who was getting his yards throughout the course of the night. But they didn't do that. On second down, they should have passed it. They didn't. And I'm thinking to myself, what are they doing? And then Damian Williams, that little screen where it looked like he was out of bounds, but I understand it was tough to overturn. It had to be 100% conclusive. I thought he stepped out before the ball crossed the plate of the goal line. But again, it wasn't definitive. Touchdown. Away you go, 24-20. But you still had plenty of time to go. You had all three timeouts. Everything's pretty much still set up for San Francisco to come back. And like I said before, even after that first play, when they get the ball, they run Raheem Mostert, which I thought was an excellent play call because everybody's probably expecting them to pass. This is at 244 left. So he runs for 17 yards. Then they get a false start on Emmanuel Sanders. After that, you had Kittle, who had a pass there, was pushed out of bounds, which led to a two-minute warning, but then they replayed that, and then they had the pass to Kendrick Bourne for 16 yards, which set them up. 149, and this is what I talked about before, three timeouts with 149 to go. They could have run the ball. They had plenty of time to execute, and what did they do? They went away from who they were, and granted, they needed a touchdown there. I understand that if it was a three-point game, they could have settled and go ahead and try to kick a field goal, no problem. But you know what? You're in chief territory. Mind you, you're at midfield. You could, I understand maybe even taking some shots there because Garoppolo, who was efficient in the passing game, I mean, obviously he didn't have a great game, but certainly wasn't awful. And we understand he's not Patrick Mahomes either. He's not the gunslinger, and that team doesn't have that type of mentality. But to think after that, for them to short right pass to Debo Samuel was incomplete. Then you had the other play over the middle to again to Kendrick Bourne, incomplete. Where was George Kittle? I understand he's probably double teamed. Kittle didn't really have his imprint on the game other than that pass interference. But obviously he was nowhere to be found in this game as far as making any big plays of concern. Then you had Emmanuel Sandals on third down. And midway through the fourth quarter, I even put out another tweet. This wasn't really reverse jinx. This was a criticism. For all the talk that Frank Clark had throughout the course of the week and all the jibber-jabber and everything that he was talking about and, oh, being traded from Seattle and, oh, I know these guys in San Francisco. They're not going to do anything to stop me. I was like, well, where's Frank Clark? All this smack he hasn't done anything. Well, on fourth and 10, he came up with the play that pretty much propelled this team to win a Super Bowl as he sacked Jimmy G, which there should have been a delay a game. And I'm sure if you're a Niner fan, even though it would have been fourth and 15, you would have taken that to get a reset and hopefully a better play call on that because and give it up for the chief defense when they had to rise the occasion they did and the Niners when they had to did not and then what was the touchdown run as you saw for Damian Williams where he was able to get there off left tackle and then there was no I mean please I could have ran to that hole and ran into the end zone just an atrocious job. And again, that's where their defense spit the bit. And who knows? Maybe did they give up? I don't want to say they gave up on the play. You can't do that. But what was that, man? 
So in essence, they gave up 21 points in the final nine minutes of the game. And Andy Reid finally gets a Super Bowl ring. Congratulations to him. And you could pretty much now, he could roller skate into the Hall of Fame. And again, if you're a Niner fan this morning, you are sick to your stomach knowing that you had this game. I'm going to say it. You had this game won. Why would I think otherwise? After that interception, I'll one last time. After that interception with 11.57 to go, and I understand it's still a whole quarter. And he can't put it all on the offense. We understand that, hey, you scored 20 points up until that point, and we understand you're going to have to need to score more against this Chief team, but still. Some blame does go to Shanahan, but could the defense make a stop? And they couldn't. And the third and 15 is going to haunt them all winter, spring, summer long. And the Chiefs, what could you say? Just a magical playoff run. And sometimes the way sports works out, the cards were all lined up and the stars, everything, were aligned after Miami beat New England there week 17, knowing that they didn't have to take two road games to get to the Super Bowl, knowing that the Ravens were knocked off by the Titans, and then look what happened yesterday in the fourth quarter on the third and 15 to Tyreek Hill. That was it. And they won a Super Bowl. Let's see, a couple of the things on the game before I move on. I know you had that episode on the sideline there with Tyron Matthew. I forgot when it was that point of the game. I believe it was maybe late third quarter. But uh, I didn't want to hear from him. I didn't think he had a big game either. Considering that uh, he olayed on that Kyle Ustick touchdown. I mean, he didn't even try to lay out or try to do anything to push him or knock the ball out. He just, hey, just take the touchdown. Which is a bad job on his part. But the Chief defense, they played well. And Frank Clark, he came up and he even came up with a sack afterwards at 31-20. On the next possession, on the first, actually the first play of the next possession by the Niners. So Frank Clark, who did nothing, didn't even call his name in the first 57 and a half minutes. Well, obviously when they needed him the most, he showed up. So good for him. D. Ford was an offsides away from going to the Super Bowl. And then on the Niners, he loses there in a tough spot. And he didn't do anything in the game. To me, that was all Nick Bosa and DeForest Buckner, which they were phenomenal. Other than getting to Mahomes there late, and they could have gotten to him and on that third and 15. But what more could they have done? The pass rush was stellar the whole night. They rushed four guys the whole night. And at times, they did rush five. But Mahomes, as I said before, what could you say? And that was a pro-Niner crowd. I couldn't believe how much. And we get that there's a huge Niner contingent in this country. They had him into a Super Bowl in 25 years. We get that Kansas City is just going to be that region that's going to flocked down to South Florida to watch the game, but I was shocked to hear there's so many Niner fans in the crowd, especially during the introductions and the early part of the game. But Chief Kingdom rules, and the NFL season is now in the books. So let's see what happens. you got the combine coming up in a few weeks, which obviously I cannot get into, then the draft, and we start it all over again. But that's what you have there for a Super Bowl 54 and an NFL season, which was, and the postseason, other than the wild card weekend, a divisional playoff weekend, other than the Ravens getting knocked off, it was not a, and Super, the championship games, the postseason was probably a B. And the Super Bowl was very good. The Super Bowl was probably B plus. But not a, a stellar start to finish postseason. And the regular season, listen, we understand it's not going to be action packed for 17 straight weeks. But uh, they did have its lulls. Late in the season, obviously, was very interesting, especially in the NFC West with San Francisco and Seattle. That was fascinating. And then, of course, what took place in Week 17. But other than that, listen, it was a good NFL season. 
wasn't spectacular. It wasn't the best ever. For the 100th anniversary, which they did an excellent job there in the pregame, which I love that, with all the players on the field, that was fantastic. But now it's over and done with. Now, a couple of quick things. I know that the sources have come out and said that the NFL is thinking about a 17-game season, which I think is just atrocious. Why 17? Just, if anything, just round it off to 18 and have two bye weeks and kill the preseason. Because as we've said, as I've said time and time again, the preseason is obviously it means nothing, but nobody cares. I wouldn't go to a preseason game if it was held in my backyard. You know me, draw the blinds. So that's what they should do there. Why add one more game, make it even, make it 18, and just have two buys, and away we go. That's it. So I understand they want to make more money, and they want to try to appease the players. We get that. But 17 games is just weird. That's like a baseball season. Hey, let's have 163 games. Or an NBA season, let's have 83 games. Just round it off. Get that even number in. 18. That's it. And as far as the Hall of Fame is concerned, Troy Polamalu, congratulations to him as he gets in on the first ballot. I understand his arguments for Edrin James, who was a very good back and had some dominant seasons early on in his career. I know late in his career, he certainly fell off. I, I get you could say that for a lot of players, even Jerome Bettis for that matter, and I understand he had a bigger body of work when you looked at it overall, and he was a fourth time at the time when he retired, was fourth all-time as far as rushing is concerned. But Edron James, he's a borderline guy, and I liked him. I loved him as a pro. I thought he was excellent. He was just like low to the ground, very shifty. Very, It was an excellent back. Steve Atwater gets in. Now, we all know he was a just a hard-hitting safety on those Denver Bronco teams. And he gets in. I'm surprised he actually put in two safeties. Isaac Bruce, who was the leader of the greatest show on turf, and he was a dominant player. And I get a lot of people going to look at also, oh, well, the wide receivers, they're going to be filtering in little by little because of the way the game has changed over the years with the fantasy and the game is more pass-friendly and pass-oriented. Well, he's a product of that. And when I think of those teams, yes, and Torrey Holt is a guy that's right behind him. But Isaac Bruce is the leader of that. Is he a lock Hall of Famer? Maybe not a lock, but is he deserving? I think so. Steve Hutchinson is a guy that's deserving. Now, Alan Fanica, it's interesting, because Fanica, who played at the same time during Hutchinson's career, and i got to go back and look at this, but he is just as deserving of getting this honor as well. And maybe he'll get in at some point, and you would think so. Because Fanica, I believe, was a six-time first-team All-Pro. And we understand guards are the least sexiest position on the football field. You know, it's not a center, it's not a left tackle. So we get that it's not going to be the one position that everybody's going to start doing jumping jacks for, but Fanica's deserving. I'm not saying that because he's an old stealer, but when you look at offensive linemen, and in particular guards, forget about the Pro Bowls. Just look at how many all pros he has. And I believe Fanica maybe have six to Steve Hutchinson's five. That's what you have there for the Hall of Fame, so obviously Polamalu was a lock. I'll give Hutchinson, Bruce, yes. James and Atwater, to me, a borderline. And, of course, they'll go in with the Centennial class, Bill Cower, Jimmy Johnson, Harold Carmichael, the countless others that are going to be paraded into Canton there in August. And sadly, a former Hall of Famer had passed away and a one, Chris Dolman, brain cancer, 58 years old, way too soon. And I tell you, the sports and... These deaths over the first month has just been just absolutely brutal. 2020 has not been kind to the former or current athlete. 
well, more so the I think of Kobe more current, even though I know he's recently retired. But when you look at David Stern, Don Larson, Sam Weish, Kobe Bryant, Chris Dolman, I mean, geez, and that's just January. Hopefully, this is not a sign of things to come when it comes, not even just in sports, overall, of course, but considering sports is taking the brunt of this, geez, this is an awful start in that regard. So, of course, my thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Dolman family. And boy, did uh, Tom Brady throw a curve to everybody. With the post on his Instagram, him looked like he's walking either in or out of the tunnel from Foxborough, and it was all because of a Hulu ad. But there are rumors about the possibility of Gruden linking up with Brady as far as Las Vegas is concerned. Who knows what that means for Derek Carr. But obviously, we're not going to get into all that. We'll wait a couple of months, really next month when you think about it, when the NFL free agency season kicks off, I believe, what, somewhere around March 8th to the 10th. So we got that to chew on. So finally, we could put this football season to bed. We could certainly focus in on the winter sports. And now, sadly, we enter the first part of the sports dead zone for the year. Because even though there is some basketball and college basketball and hockey and pitchers and catchers will start reporting next week, but not until you get to the tournament, the first two days, that Thursday, Friday, and mid-March, yes, it's pretty much going to be a slow period, to say the least. But each week, I'll be here to deliver everything that's happening, as you well know, as we now turn our attention to the NBA, and we'll get into a little bit of everything to kind of put the whole Kobe Bryant saga to bed. And we all know how tragic it was, how, listen, I don't need to get into all that. I got on the podcast last week, and that was pretty much the first 20, 25 minutes of it. Just the complete shock, the complete tragedy, everything. I mean, what could you say? It's still unthinkable. It's still unconscionable. I mean, even eight days later, just to think that this once great player and icon and all the stories that have come out over the last week about what he's done, and you would never think in a zillion years because when you Although last week I explained my thoughts about Kobe Bryant, but the one thing you didn't really wrap your head around was what he did, especially after his retirement. What he did as far as his influence on the younger players in the league, his influence on other athletes that were younger than him in different sports. Of course, his influence around the world as the NBA is global, as we all know. The impact that he had on guys like Novak Djokovic, guys like Richard Sherman, Guys that you wouldn't even think in a million years that, wow, he came across this player and whatever knowledge and wisdom and took that and just the stories were endless and I couldn't get enough of. Sadly, had to come at the expense of his life, but when you hear stuff like that, you just marvel at, wow, this is what he did. And you always looked at Kobe Bryant as a guy who was laser focused, was strict about his craft, that nothing would get in the way of that. That you looked at him as just a savage, 1,000% assassin. That he couldn't care about anybody or anything else besides perfecting his craft. And the crazy thing is is that when he had his time, which he spent with his family, but he was also able to share that wisdom with the youth, other athletes, and I couldn't get enough of it. But with that being said, with the ceremony that took place at the Staples Center on Friday night, and I watched every bit of it, which I thought was excellent. 
Usher, who I'm not a big fan of, but it, that was a little bit to be desired. We get the point. Amazing Grace, gospel song. He tried to get his own R&B flair, which my man Larry said I thought was pretty funny. Who's a big Laker fan? Give him a, give him a little shout-out here. But the speech by LeBron was excellent. Obviously, the video tributes, A+. And then the Lakers, which you can understand, with all the emotion, not playing in a week, and Damian Lillard, who's the hottest player in the NBA right now, just lit him up again. I'll get to him a little bit later. There was not to be a dry eye in the house and heavy hearts left and right. So what can you say? As much as you can look at the Lakers wanting to come out like gangbusters, it's just tough to do. And even though I thought that this is going to rally the team, it's going to be Kobe from here on out, and there's still plenty of basketball to be played, but this is going to take some time. This isn't something that you could just say, all right, yeah, puff your chest out and go through a brick wall. I mean, obviously these guys are human and they remain close to Kobe in some way, shape, or form, and especially LeBron, as he well said before he even came into the league, how he was a tremendous influence. And for people to look at wanting to say, hey, is Kobe going to be the logo now? Let's pipe down on that. I mean, we get the severity of all this, and but right now to automatically want to put the face or put the logo of the NBA is now Kobe Bryant. Let's not forget Jerry West is the logo right now. And to me, there's no reason to change it. If you were to change it, it would be for the Jorgen logo. But then, of course, I'm sure that they'd have to be in cahoots with Nike. And that's a story for another day. But to me, Kobe to be the logo, no. And that's, that's no knock on Kobe. But to me, that's just unnecessary. And then, of course, you have the all-star game that they're going to tribute Kobe Bryant. They're going to do this hokey thing with the 24 points in the fourth quarter. I, I mean, I didn't even get the full grasp of it. But just like the NHL All-Star game with the skills competition and the whole, oh, let's shoot from the second level of the arena, I, uh, why even bother? If you want to commemorate him by wearing either the number eight, the number 24, even the number two, that is daughter, of course, who perished in the crash, Gianna, wore when she played on her basketball travel team, wearing the number two. If they want to do that, fine. That's great. That's the way you tribute your fallen superstar. But to now make change rules and let's make the final quarter 24 points. Uh, no, I mean, come on. And I understand they're trying to get eyeballs to the sets, but there's going to be people that are going to watch. The diehard NBA fan are probably going to watch anyway to see what they're going to do or how they're going to do it. But to change the game, it's, uh, please, uh, it's just a waste of time. And if you want to do what they did, start the game with the 24-second shot clock violation, just let it expire, and then the other team the West or the East, whoever gets the ball, they do the eight-second violation. Great. Fantastic. That's the way to pay a tribute. All the other stuff, about changing rules and scores, uh, please. Well, just a complete waste of time. I know the All-Star Reserves right now, so I'm not going to get into that. Who cares? But the one big player that may be out of the game is Luka Doncic. Is he sprained his right ankle. He's going to be out two weeks. The All-Star game actually going to take place, I believe, two weeks from yesterday. So if I'm... Mark Cuban and the Mavericks, I'm sorry, he's got to sit out. He's going to see plenty of All-Star games in his future. You don't have to worry about him not participating. To me, he could show up for the game, but as far as the dress, uh uh-uh. Give that spot to somebody else. There's a bigger picture here, and Luka, as much as he's probably excited and wants to get out there, uh uh-uh. He's going to have to take a back seat. Told us to it. And I'm also going to say one other thing about Kobe before I uh, get into a couple of NBA notes. I get that last week. Just with everything, the enormity of this whole situation, we get that on his, during his basketball life, 
He had the incident in Vail, Colorado, 2003. <clears throat> Excuse me, which I'm not going to recap and rehash. Now, listen, it goes on his record. We all know that as far as not only just his criminal record, because that's not what it's about, but just as far as him being embroiled in this situation. And even thinking back, I'll never forget the press conference. He didn't have a statement. Now, he didn't take any questions after that, which, okay, it would have been nice, but it wasn't a scripted, it wasn't a situation where he was just going to sit behind a mic with his wife and read off a piece of paper and then just walk off of the podium. He didn't do that. Now, again, he was he was repetitive. You know, I'm innocent. Of course, he's going to say that. But if there was one thing I gave to Kobe then, I give him now, is that at least he faced the music and he did on his own words and his own accord without any type of measured statement spoke from his heart. But you had a couple of people come out. I thought it wasn't the right time. Listen, can we talk about that maybe after the All-Star break or after these tributes, whatever? Rightfully so. We understand that that was a black mark on him. Committing adultery, so on and so forth. And then I understand you had later on, and you could get on Stephen A. Smith prior to the game Friday night when they had that little round table there with Michael Wilbon, Paul Pierce, Jalen Rose. Uh, one of the first things he came out and said, he's a wonderful husband. Well, you got to pump the brakes there a little bit, there, uh, Stephen A. And I understand that from that point on he was, but Let's face it, 2003, he was not to Kobe's admission, despite the fact that he thought there was consent, but he was married. So, yes, and I get you could look at the last, whatever, 15 years or going back, what, 16 years, 2003, 2004, 17, you do the math. Understandably so, he's been a good husband, father, etc. We've seen that, but it's kind of tough to say when you have a faction of the country or a faction of people that aren't Kobe fans or are just going to speak the truth that, hey, he did have that one bad misstep, so it's arguable. And then there was an article, if you haven't read it, which I thought was very good. An ESPN writer, let me sure I get her name right here. Sarah Spain wrote an article, and although she looked at the achievements of one Kobe Bryant and said, hey, you have to applaud him, and sad how everything had transpired during that helicopter crash, but... Yes, he does have this, and we cannot forget about this. That there's somebody out there that can't say anything about this. That there's this one individual somewhere, and who knows if he, even if she's still around. Not to say that she's not on this earth anymore, but who knows if she's she lives in Europe now or in Australia? Who knows? But right, on she's got to hold this close to the vest for the rest of her life. And you know what? She makes a great point. If a gentleman was going to write about that, and they have the right, but. Coming from a woman's perspective, and I thought it was a very fascinating article, and she's 100%, and you can't knock it. And you can look at, oh, oh, this is a tough time to say this, don't be insensitive. And I don't think she was coming across with any type of vitriol or any type of agenda, but she was just stating the fact. So wherever Sarah Spain is, I got to give her up, give it up for her for writing that article. I felt me, it was, I just didn't want to do it because I was just in the days all Saturday, even into Monday, even into midweek, because as all the stories started pouring in, I couldn't get enough of it. And to me, it wasn't about what happened 17 years ago, although you have a right to discuss it. I felt that last Monday wasn't the time. That's why I'm kind of bringing it up here, because I certainly didn't want to sweep it under the rug and think that, hey, you know, Kobe was this perfect guy that didn't have any blemishes on his record. And unfortunately, and again, it was many years ago, and it was prior to... Everything that's happened post-2004, you know, he's been the model citizen. He's been the model 
husband, father, etc. But you can't forget about that one time in Colorado with that incident. Now, two other things. Damian Lillard, what could you say about his performance over the past, what was it, six games? So you're talking about a week and a half? This guy's averaging 50 points a game, or almost 49 points, nine rebounds, eight assists. He has been just killer from three. And as you saw what he did to the Lakers there the other night on Friday, and then against Utah, he scored 50 against them, actually 51. He scored 61 against Golden State at the start of this whole streak. And the crazy thing is when you look at Portland, they are still on the outside looking in as far as the playoffs are concerned. But they're winning games. They're playing well. So kudos to him. And it's just amazing to think that this guy who wanted to stay in Portland, obviously got the big money this offseason, felt it was important to stay there, stay in that community. Obviously, he's not too far from where he grew up in Oakland. And he's certainly been the talk of the league here as he's just been dominating at his position. But that's the thing. When you look at him and his team, you have a great backcourt and you have good role players, but they're not a team that's going to get you over the hump despite the fact they went to a conference final last year. And here they are this year, were they 23 and 27 and in what, ninth or 10th place in the Western Conference. And then the other thing is too, and I thought this was funny because if you listen to last week's podcast when you had that incident between K-State and Kansas when the K-State player down 81-59 with about 10 seconds to go, he steals the ball, gets a layup, or he's going to attempt a layup and then he gets swatted off the backboard and then the K-State player, Sylvia D'Souza, stands over him and then a riot ensues to the point where D'Souza is suspended for the rest of the year and... When you look back and you say to yourself, why is he stealing the ball down 20-something points? I understand he's being competitive, whatever. But at that point, you call off the dogs. You don't even bother, whatever. Well, this past week, you had a situation between the Grizzlies and Knicks where at 121-106, Jay Crowder's taking a three-pointer in which he makes. So now it's with 53 seconds to go. So now it's 124-106. to So then what happens? He steals the inbounds pass. He goes to the corner, shoots another three. Gets fouled by Alfred Payton, which he gets an elbow to the chest and a forearm, which I thought Payton was right, by the way, because Jay Crowder knows the game is over. He just shot a dagger three up 15. All right, fine. You want to rub the nose in it? Great. But then to do that on top of that? And then I listened to the Memphis announcers. Oh, this is Bush League. Uh, Bush League? What do you think Jay Crowder just did? Crowder, who just sunk a three, and then he steals the ball and he runs right to the three-point line to shoot a three. And he looks at Alfred Payton. Oh, that's Bush League. How are you going to do that? Well, guess what? He was sending a message. And granted, this isn't the NHL, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Granted, this isn't the NHL, but that's just the code. That's protocol in the NBA. You're not going to don't do that. And for Payton to just shove his forearm right into Crowder and he goes flying into the stands, I thought that was an excellent move by him. And I'm sorry. The Memphis announcers are wrong. 1,000%. And then you had Marcus Morris get involved, and I'll talk about him later on as far as what he said in the postgame. But yeah, that was just, to me, that was just downright silly for the announcers to come out and look at Alfred Payton as the bad guy. Oh, it's Bush League. How could he do that? It's terrible. Meanwhile, why is Crowder shooting a three up 19 with 50-something seconds ago? That was disgraceful. But the uh, NBA right now is the All-Star break is just, uh, what, 10, 12 days away. Everything's pretty much status quo. I know Toronto's still been playing on a torrid Stretch here as they won 11 in a row. Trying to get some separation there in the East. 
Philly, who the Celtics finally beat there on Saturday night. They can't get out of their own way. I know I seem to pick on Philly every week. I'm not going to do that this week, but they certainly have underachieved this year. I think I picked them as an over, and look at that. They're going to be teetering on the brink of whether or not they're going to be an over this year. And then out west, like I said, Portland is a game and a half back of the west where Memphis, and they played well too, 24 and 25, but they have the eight seed right now. So there's going to be a race for the eight seed. And if you're looking somewhere in the middle between Clippers, Denver, Utah, Houston, and you want to throw Dallas and OKC in the mix, they're all separated by four and a half games from two to seven as far as the seeds are concerned. And that's what you have there. Kyrie Irving, I know, sustained a serious knee injury. He said he walked off fine, but boy, that was just ugly how his knee got caught under the leg of Bradley Beal. I don't know what the MRI revealed, but Irving said he was fine, so good for him. Uh, So that's what we got with the NBA. Now, let me turn my attention to the NHL real quick, and they cannot seem to get out of their own way. I was on the air last week where the season started after their All-Star break. And I don't know if NBCSN does this anymore with the Wednesday night rivalry situation, which I remember in the past that they did. Well, the game the other night, I think it was Predators and Capitals at 7 o'clock, and then the 10 p.m. game was Kings and Lightning. We know the Kings are having an awful year. Tampa was a team that, as we all know, had the highest point total, it seemed like, in modern NHL history last year, and it got swept out of the first round. But there was another game that was being played, there on Wednesday night between Edmonton and Calgary. And if you recall a couple weeks back where you had the incident between Edmonton, Zach Cassian, and Calgary's Matt Kachuk, where Kachuk had run Cassian a couple times and then Cassian dropped his gloves down to a fight and got suspended for two games. And then there was a war of words back and forth. Well, the matchup there was Wednesday night and the NHL could have capitalized on that. They could have looked at that game and said, you know what, let's take... Tampa and LA out and let's put Edmonton Calgary in because we all know the NHL just like the NBA there's very little juice in the regular season and I understand the casual sports fan they couldn't put they they won't even know that Edmonton and Calgary are in the same province in Canada get that but just as far as a little bit of theater just as far as a little bit of build up that would have been the best spot to put up because those are two old fierce rivals. We get the games a lot different. I'm not going to get into all that. Trust me, I won't get on my soapbox as far as the physical play. But when you look at those games of yesteryear, all you got to do is YouTube Edmonton Oilers, Calgary Flames rivalry or 1980s. And there were brawls left and right. Understand it's a different game today than it was then. But considering what happened with the two aforementioned players on Edmonton and Calgary, what happens in this first matchup? Wednesday night, three minutes to go, first period. They square off after the puck drops. They fight. Wasn't much of a fight. Cassian got a few blows in. Kachuk tried to hang in there. Wasn't anything to really jump up and down. But guess what? Knowing that they were playing three nights later in Calgary, because that game was in Edmonton, knowing that they were going to play three nights later in Calgary certainly set the stage for what took place next. And obviously you had a game there on Saturday night where Edmonton, what was it, 8-3 to I think the score was? And Calgary was annihilated, but to the point where you had a scrum in front of the net in the second period. And what did that lead to? The goalies fighting at center ice. I didn't hear one boo. I didn't hear the crowd turn its back or boo to the extent where, oh, this is ugly. This is 
pitiful. This is the sport. This is a black eye. This is a disgrace. Whatever happened to rivalries in sports? Whatever happened to sports hatred? Whatever happened to, oh, I can't stand this team, or oh, I can't stand that player? I understand the society we live in in this day and age is fraternizing, is a brotherhood. I get that. But if it's on the ice, it should be personal. It should be a thing where, uh uh-uh, I'm going to take care of this real estate on the ice or take care of my players to the point where they don't get run, certainly don't get injured, and if that's going to be the case, there's going to be a price to pay. And even with the goalies fighting, which was Mike Smith and Cam Talbot, uh, it, it brought me back to the 80s. And the young hockey fan, they could say, oh, Jay Reels, you're a Neanderthal. All you want is violence. Don't you know it's all about the scoreboard? And go- I, of course I do. I know that. But here's what I said before about the Knicks and the Grizzlies. And again, that's not a rivalry by any stretch. But this is where you send a message. Now, right, what do the goalies have to do with it? Absolutely not. But when that scrum was taking place and, to, and Kachuk was getting involved, he was getting out to scrap on the ice, and it was everybody was paired off, and the Edmonton goalie was standing there at center ice with a stick in his hands, and all of a sudden, Mike Smith skates over, and they drop, the glove, they drop their sticks, gloves, the helmets come off, and it's just, man, it doesn't get any better than that. It just doesn't. To me, that is hockey. And to the older hockey fan like myself that I saw on Twitter, hockey Twitter was a buzz with this. They were going crazy. And it's true. Look at Brian Burke. And understand he's an old school guy. He was a former Vancouver Canucks VP. He said that a lot of the passion, a lot of the hatred has been gone from the game. And we understand it's all about the skill. It's about goal score. Of course. At the end of the day, right. That's what it's all about. But it's that element that's being lost from the game. The element that everybody once loved, that they knew going into a building where there could be some intimidation, there could be some physicality, it's almost as if teams shy away from it. It's almost as if teams don't want to be a part of it. And we get that the enforcer has become an endangered species, unfortunately, in the NHL. But still, there is a need. There is a place for this type of play in the NHL. And all they want to do is just turn a blind eye and just say, oh, well, that's not how it is anymore, and this is how we want it. But guess what? Edmonton-Calgary play in the final game of the season. And with the way the Pacific is going right now, where you have these teams, there's been some separation as of late as Vancouver's played pretty well, but where you have Edmonton and Calgary separated by two points, and who knows if that could be for a playoff spot or a wild card. And you mean to tell me that those teams are going to fight tooth and nail. I understand a close game that's not going to be any physical play or fisticuffs, whatever it may be, but let's just say for argument's sake that Edmonton is on the verge of knocking Calgary out of the postseason. And let's say it's 6-2, to two and it's midway through the third period, and they're having their way with Calgary, and they're not going to make the postseason. You mean to tell me there's not going to be any consequences and repercussions because of that? Damn well there. And I hope there is. Watch me jinx it by saying, oh yeah, damn well there's going to be, but watch. There'll be three penalties in the game. Edmonton will go on to the postseason. They'll laugh in Calgary's face, and then Calgary will just skate off into the sunset. But that's why the league needs this, and I've said this time and time again. And I'll just leave it at that, people, because I could just talk about this forever. But uh, NHL, yes, like I said, Vancouver has certainly put themselves in a good position as of now. We'll see what happens in the weeks to come out west. As you have Vancouver, Edmonton, and Vegas, followed by Calgary and now Arizona. Unless you're going to have Winnipeg. And Winnipeg and Boston had a very interesting game the other night, if you saw in Boston. A lot of fights, a lot of physical play. Oh, please, bring it back. Hashtag make hockey violent again. Uh, you know, St. Louis still playing well. 
as they have a big lead there, eight points in the Central. Colorado, Dallas. Now the Islanders, they have dropped big time here as Columbus has overtaken them. The Islanders certainly have hit the skids here as of late as they're now the first wild card spot. Remember, this is a team that had the second spot in the division in the Metropolitan, and now they've fallen out of that. So, and the Islanders goal scoring in the worst way. Who knows what the trade deadline is going to bring, but you wonder if there's going to be some wheeling and dealing going on. Lou Amarello, I'm sure he's going to be looking high and far to see what he could do to get some reinforcements for this team to make a long playoff push because winning a round is not cutting it anymore. And despite the fact you're going to have Boston and Washington, they're going to be the favorites, and Pittsburgh has surged, especially with Sidney Crosby back. So who knows with Tampa. But it's going to be interesting to see what they do here before the break. If they're going to have any type of long playoff run, they're going to need to get a big-time goal scorer here. What they're going to give up, who knows. But uh, the Islanders have certainly, after that tremendous start, are now wavering here a little bit to the tune where they're just separated by one point. Carolina Panthers, excuse me, Panthers, the Carolina Hurricanes, where the Islanders are one point ahead of the Carolina Hurricanes there, 64 to 63. And then you have the Flyers at 63, Florida 61, and then you have Montreal, the Rangers after that. So a lot of work ahead of them if they want to make this postseason A, and if B, they want to move up in the standings so they don't have to worry about getting a wild card. So we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. Uh, let's see, anything else in the NHL? No, that about do it. Uh, let's wrap it up here with the qu- three quickies here. Baseball, the camps will start opening up next week. Dusty Baker is now the new manager of the Houston Astros. He's come in and he says, hey, he's going to get full respect of the room. Good that they get an old school manager. I think it was right. It was wise. They don't have to worry about any shenanigans with any video equipment and drums and all that nonsense that have pretty much taken the baseball world by storm here over the last three, four weeks. So to have him in the mix, let's see how uh, that fares if you're Dusty Baker who has come that close. Remember, 2002, as a member of the Giants, up 5 nothing in the seventh inning in a game five, excuse me, a game six. He loses that game as he takes out Russ Ortiz prematurely in the sixth inning or seventh inning, I think that was. 2003, Bartman game as a member, as manager of the Chicago Cubs. We all know how that unfolded. And then many years later as manager of the Nats, making the postseason and spitting a bit there. So let's see if he gets another crack at making it to the postseason and hopefully getting that elusive World Series ring that he's been waiting and longing for as a manager throughout his professional career. So we'll see about that. I know a lot of the talk this past week has been Mookie Betts and trade rumors with the Dodgers or the Padres. Now, the Dodgers look like they may have a little bit more to offer despite San Diego having a very good farm system themselves. But it looks like they don't want to part with any of their top players, which would include Mackenzie Gore, who's their top pitching prospect, or even Fernando Tatis. Now, I don't know who what outfielders they have. I know they have guys like Manuel Margot. Joey Lucchese is a left-handed pitcher that uh, they would probably send in a package, but it's certainly not going to beat anything that the Dodgers could come up, whether it's Alex Verdugo, who's a young prospect on the on the come-up, or Dustin May, who's the right-hander with the long hair. The Dodgers look like they have a lot more to give, and we'll see if anything shakes down here over the course of the next few days because the Red Sox right now, they're certainly at a crossroads. Not only because of everything that took place here with Alex Cora having to be let go, they still don't have a manager in tow, but also with the Mookie Betts contract extension hanging over him, they have to pay him $27 million, which is a record in arbitration for all time. And then they also have to deal with 
David Price and his three years and $93 million on his contract who could possibly go in a trade with Mookie Betts. I tell you, who would have thought that when I had J.D. just on, what is it, a week, 10 days ago, how 15, 16 months ago, they were on top of the baseball world again, fourth championship in this century, and now here it is, and they pretty much have to pair payroll. They don't have a manager. They're certainly rudderless at this point, and I tell you, to talk about a turn of events here over the last few weeks, so we'll see what the Red Sox do, whether or not they uh, let go of their top player and former MVP, Mookie Betts. I know on a lesser note, Nick Castellano signs with the Reds, and the Reds have had a very good offseason with Mustakis, and they also get the uh, Japanese player, I can't think of who it was, their first ever position Japanese player that the Reds have signed. Stalling Marte gets traded to Arizona for two prospects, and look at that, they traded... Last year, Paul Goldschmidt and Zach Greinke, and then to think that they were in the wild card race until late September, and here they are this offseason as they sign Madison Bumgarner, they re-sign Robbie Ray for one more year, and now they have Stalling Marte, who is in a walk year, but is a very good outfielder. So Arizona thinks that, hey, they could make some hay in the NL West, maybe not contend for a division, but certainly could be part of the wild card mix. So we'll see what happens there as pitchers and catchers will start reporting a week from today, people. And I think San Diego is one of the first teams to have camps open. And then just a few days after that, you'll have the veterans report. And then in late March, another baseball season. So that's number one. Number two, the Australian Open. The winners there, you have Sophia Kennan, who wins the first tennis major of the year. And good for her. She certainly... Had a great stretch there where not only did she beat Coco Goff, who a lot of people thought could have made it to a semifinal, even a final, considering there was no more Serena, and she beat Naomi Osaka. But congratulations to Kenan, 21 years old. Now, she's from Russia or born in Russia, but she is in Florida. So a lot of people think that maybe she could be a springboard along with Coco Goff to kind of put U.S. women's tennis on the map. So we'll certainly continue to keep our eye on that as we move forward to the French in a couple of months. But the men's side, when you look at just the dominance of Novak Djokovic, eight Australian Opens, I mean, what could you say? The guy has now won 17 Grand Slams. He's one behind Rafael Nadal at 18, and of course, three behind Roger Federer. Now, Federer was on fumes by the time he faced Djokovic, where Djokovic disposed him pretty much in three rounds or three sets. And even Federer said, I don't know what I'm going to have to do to even stay upright, considering that he had that brutal... Five-set match there against, who was that, uh, Tennis Sangren. So that five-long-set victory really took all the starch out of a matchup between the Joker and Roger Federer. And then Dominic Time, who was ahead two sets to one and pretty much dominated those second and third sets. And you're wondering if Djokovic was going to come out of this. But he certainly geared up, rallied the troops. I don't know what it was. Maybe the little mama mentality kicked in as... He and Kobe were really close, but he ends up winning the 8th Australian Open of his career, 17th Grand Slam of his illustrious career, and certainly it's arguable whether or not he could be one of the top two or three players of all time. Maybe he's ranked number two. A lot of people may have him ranked number one. I get the Nadal corner could say, hey, he has 18. He could be second all time, but the thing with Nadal, he's 12 of them have been in one tournament. And even though almost half of them for... Djokovic had been in the Australian, but at least he's been able to spread out the others, whereas two-thirds of Nadal's victories, and I love Nadal, 
have come in the one tournament, and that's the French. So we'll put the tennis rackets aside until late May until we get to Roland Garros for the French. And then lastly, with college basketball, not much here to report here as the top 10 is pretty much still the same. Baylor, Gonzaga, Kansas, San Diego State, FSU, Louisville, Dayton, Villanova, Duke, Seton Hall, etc. But the one news of the week was how Mike Krzyzewski was yelling at the Cameron Crazies because of some things that were directed toward former Duke player and Duke assistant Jeff Capel, who's now the coach of the Pittsburgh Panthers, told the Cameron Crazies to shut up as the Cameron Crazies were screaming at Jeff Capel to sit with us or whatever the quote was. And then in the postgame, Krzyzewski had to apologize. He got a little carried away. So he got on the students there for a few minutes, but please, there's much to do about nothing, but Again, when it's Mike Krzyzewski, when it's Duke, it's going to get a story. And I'm not a Duke fan, as everybody knows, so I figured I'd just throw that out there. But anyway, college basketball is pretty much going to be status quo unless the tables start to turn here over the course of the next few weeks as we lead into March and, of course, March Madness. As far as my hero and zero of the week to close out, my hero of the week is the one Curtis Granderson who retires from the game of baseball. Very good career. Over 300 home runs, 17 years, played in two World Series, hit three home runs in the World Series for the Mets in a losing effort, where he hit uh, home runs in games one, three, and five. Certainly a quiet leader, just a class guy all around as he steps away from the game of baseball, and good for him. One of the good guys that we're going to lose. I don't know if he's going to still be in baseball to some extent. I don't know if he's going to coach or be a mentor to some of these guys in some of these spring training camps throughout Baseball remains to be seen, but my hero to and my hats goes off to a one Curtis Granderson. And as far as my zero of the week, it's going to go to Marcus Morris of the Knicks for his comments after that game with the Memphis Grizzlies. And I understand there was a lot of emotion, and Marcus Morris definitely comes across as a tough guy. But for him to come out and call Jay Crowder or call him out for his female tendencies, which was the quote, he did apologize, and you got to give him credit for it. It was in the heat of the moment. You know he shouldn't have said that. He was certainly contrite about it. But for him to do that, obviously in this climate, bad business, didn't look right. He could have called him for Gazy. Remember once upon a time, 2004 playoffs, Knicks and Nets, where you had Kenyon Martin call out Tim Thomas, calling him for Gazy, which is another term for being fake, and maybe another term if you want to put two and two together. But at the same time, that comes across a lot better than calling Jay Crowder of uh, female tendencies. So my zero of the week goes out to him as we close out this podcast and in doing so people as i say each and every week i implore you to go ahead and if you like what you've heard throughout the course of the hour plus please hit subscribe on wherever you get your podcast whether it's on apple google spreaker stitcher spotify iHeartRadio, luminary wherever it may be cast box you name it please subscribe leave a rating post a review because all that's going to do people is just increase the visibility of this podcast among the many others not only not only just podcasts with sports in particular, and in turn, what that will do will also generate a lot of interest to the outside forces, meaning trying to get those guests, whether it's the current athlete, former athlete, the sports writer, the blogger, the broadcaster, whomever it may be. Because remember, I'm an independent entity here. Not only do I write, I edit, I produce, and host this one-man show, people. So it's not as if I have a team of advertisers or marketing team or anything like that. This is a one-man operation. So Please, I do need your assistance in that regard. So if you could go ahead and do that, I will be forever grateful and thankful. Also, you can hit me up. You want to send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise. You can follow me on any of my social media platforms, whether it's J Reels on Instagram, J Reels One, just the number on Twitter, 
the J Reels podcast on my Facebook fan page and the J Reels podcast at gmail.com to send me an email. Again, I'm open to anything, people, so please feel free to hit me up. And lastly, on my Patreon page, for those who want to contribute to this podcast, whether it's for production, advertising, marketing, whatever it may be, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels podcast. Again, I'll be forever grateful and thankful, of course, for your contribution or even just for going ahead and subscribing, rating, reviewing, because everybody knows I love to talk about sports. This is my passion, people, as I get to do this hopefully twice a week, and that's the point, to come on every Monday to give you the rundown of the week that was and then have a guest later on in the week because, as you know, I love to deliver everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.